tell me what three wins is. I know you told me before, but I can't remember. Yeah. So when we sit down with a business owner, we talk about their financial legacy in the area of three wins. So the first one is why they went into business to begin with, and that's to figure out a financial legacy for them and their family, personal financial legacy. That's the shareholder win, right? What is the, what is the business doing for you and yours, the things that you care about, the people that you care about, the causes that you care about? Yeah. And so we walk through financial independence. We walk through, you know, what that means, how they're going about that, their planning process, family legacy, charitable giving, all of that. And it all hinges upon the company win, right? If the shareholder win is out of balance with the company win, the company is going to suffer. They may have some great windfalls over the over a couple of years, but the business is going to suffer because they're not planning well. So what does it mean for the company to win? And so we talk through having a sound forecasting strategy, right? And, and, you know, some people are, you know, I want to look 18 months out. Some people want to look 10, right? But how do you plan well and what's custom for that person and their business and their industry? And uh, who, who do they need to have on the team to be able to make those strategic decisions? We also look into stakeholders in general under the company win. Who are all of the people who depend on the company being successful for a long period of time? And that could be your office manager's grandson, right? You just trace that line and say, hey, my company financially and spiritually and emotionally and physically, whatever you want to look at, it blesses and benefits a large circle of stakeholders, not just the employees, but their families, your vendors, your clients, all of those different stakeholders. We want that company to win and be successful for years to come, for generations to come. And lastly is the key leader, win. So if I've got people who are not owners, but act like owners, there's really, it's really a focal point in how I am distributing the success, financial success of the company. So if I keep all the benefit and just say, hey, I'll pay you a salary and a bonus and you should feel lucky to work here. And, you know, maybe in 10 years, I'll look at restructuring things, which is not uncommon in these founder-led organizations, especially with the generation of founders that's about to exit, whether they like it or not. Right. Then we sit down and say, hey, what's the best way to incentivize and retain and reward your key people? The people who put the extra effort in, that have the owner mindset, that go above and beyond to make whatever the benchmarks in the, in the company win growth model that we've put together achievable. How do you let them participate in the success? And that's either through, you know, deferred compensation, stock option, any number of opportunities for them to participate as long as they stay plugged in to that to that success, making that success happen. Yeah. And so we, we just model it out that way. That's the, three wins financial model for business owners and founders that we have put together. And so that's what we named the podcast. I like it. Yeah. There's, there are a lot of, you guys are way beyond, you know, a registered investment advisor, but there's a lot of, of RIAs in the market that try to approach helping a client in at best one of those legs of the, of, of the, of the stool. And so you, I commend you guys for, taking such a 
comprehensive sort of holistic approach. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. And and I've not officially hit the go button on the podcast, but why don't we just include that piece too? That's good. And and Brant, one of the we talk about it from a headwaters position, meaning the the dollars that God is wanting to bring into your company. If you've got these planning steps in place, if you've got the if you've got the conversation uh, of the three wins mapped out, if you've got a great culture, God wants to bring business into your company. If you're treating it as if he owns it and you're acting as like the steward that he's asking you to be, he wants to bless your company. He may bless it financially sometimes. Sometimes he may bless it through other trials and tribulations that make you a better person, make your team stronger, whatever his cadence is of those blessings we believe that that god wants to do that otherwise he wouldn't have given you a business right he wouldn't said hey go and go and carry this forward so if the kingdom mindset is right or you're at least pursuing that kingdom mindset god wants to do that so that's the headwaters before it ever comes in and then managing it well all the way through and then having the right distribution buckets prepared right paying taxes but strategically minimizing those, making sure that you're taking care of the company, right? Reinvestment, what does it need to do? What other investments out there that you can put money into that will continue the cause just happens to not be within your business directly. Personal savings and investment, what does that look like to build that so that it can continue from generation to generation? And then other strategic investments that you want to do that just happen to complement what you're already doing, whether it's a merger or just going out in another direction. So making sure that those channels for the net income are correctly, it's like the Delta, right? The headwaters. And then you finally get to the Delta and it's going out to these well-planned, uh, strategically planned outlets. You're putting the dollars into those different buckets for a specific purpose. That's the full scope of the financial planning that we like to do versus Whatever ends up in the delta, that's what I'll manage, right? That that's all, that's often what you hear. Whatever ends up in the delta, we start way up here. Say, hey, God's got a purpose before the dollars ever come in. How do we put that to use? And that's the part of that is the ESOP question, right? How do we bless all stakeholders? And that's the beauty of of the ESOP question. ESOP's not for every company. Yeah. It can't be, right? It can't be. But for those that it could be, it's a really great option. But that's not all you do, right? It's not just ESOP work. Correct. Yeah. So Brent, Brent Brerenton, California transplant, thanks to your wife, and master of the ESOP conversation and transition transaction. So t- tell us, tell, tell, tell the audience a little bit about where you came from, how you got to California and uh, your extensive banking and M&A background before yeah. we get into the specifics on ESOP. Yeah, so I actually grew up in San Jose, California, which is which is now considered the capital of Silicon Valley. When I was a little boy, it was all cherry orchards, and we used to run around and shoot BB guns, and, and it was an idyllic a- agricultural valley, really, that has just radically transformed into now, you know, what is Silicon Valley and and very, very different landscape. I, 
actually my wife and I are, are uh, the bags aren't packed, but close to packed to, to move to Reno, Nevada, to, to tap out of California. Can't, can't take it anymore, but started my investment banking career. Literally the, my very first day in the business was the crash of 1987 and have lived through every down cycle that's existed since then. So, you know, in our, in our fourth or fifth cycle, I guess at this point and at age 60 next month, I think we figured out how to, how to navigate those, those down cycles and, and position business owners for, for that up cycle. It's not whether they're coming, it's managing ahead of time, managing through them and preparing for the upswing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Somebody said the other day they were they were timing the U.S. economic, one of the economic cycles. They started with a Revolutionary War, then they hit the Civil War, then they hit World War I, II, and they're just trying to map this out and say that the 2020s are going to be highly volatile. And I don't, I mean, I don't know if you just go back and trace a map that says all of these things are linked together with the, with the major U.S. wars, but I heard that the other day and, and I didn't dig into it. You heard that every I 80 have, years or so? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't done much work in kind of the long cycle analysis of, of markets, really. The thing that I've really observed, I, I think, over the last, you know, 20 10, 20 years is the Fed's response to economic crisis, even going sort of back to, to 08 and, and it was just really where it started, just an overreaction on the part of the Fed to keep interest rates, the cost of capital artificially low, like significantly artificially low, rather than allowing it to kind of find its own natural state of being, if you will. There's a really, really good book. It's a little bit out there on the edge, but brilliant money manager and hedge fund manager, really, who called the Dow of Capital that that talks about, you know, Austrian economics, which I, I really, really resonates with me, where, where if the Fed keeps interest rates really, really low for a long period of time, asset values artificially raise and you know, we've, we've, we've seen that we've all lived through that over the last, you know, 10, 10, 15 years and, and mm-hmm. matter of time before, before those assets will reprice. And I think we're already seeing that. Right. And so then the fed doesn't do enough to, to we're politically, politically driven, I think. And, and so well, th- there's, there's a time of reckoning coming, I believe. What's the name of that book? You said the Dow, what? Dow of capital D A O. It is very esoteric and very out there, and he draws from from certainly non-Christian Eastern Eastern thought, but uh-huh. get past all of that, he he makes really really good points from a from an Austrian school of economic perspective, and he, not to get down into the weeds about investing, but but you know in in the in every downturn this hedge fund has outperformed any other investment because they don't, they don't, they're, they're always 
dragging puts along portfolios for clients. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you, you, you may not achieve the highest returns, investment returns in up markets, but when when the inevitable happens, they crush it. And so, yeah. you know, sort of how you how you define success is key and in a relationship to what the market realities really, really are, which is artificially low interest rates given where we are. Yeah. Well, in, in you know, kind of in, in, you've had a uh, much more extensive career than I have, but just in, in the decade that I've been in this business, there's so many different approaches, so many different theories, so many ways of looking at and saying, well, this is the best one, or they've had the most successful track record, or put the qualifiers to their approach, because you can't have something that includes every approach, right? right? Exactly. It's, right. There, there are mutually exclusive approaches. You can't do one and do the other at the same time. And if you're trying both, then even if you're 50-50 diversified, you're still betting one against the other, hoping that one... So that's... That the people who say this is the way to do it, that's their way of doing it. Yeah, just to get returns in a number of different ways. And, and yeah. but people who say, hey, this is my approach and I'm happy to explain it to you, those are great people because they're opening up people's minds to thought and risk preference, personality goes into it. It's amazing how many different factors go yeah. into it. Just depends what you're trying to solve for, right? That's not, it. Not everybody's trying to solve for the same thing. Yeah, begin with the end in mind. Well, that's a good, I'll have to check that book out. We'll put the- uh, Hard, we'll put hard to get to through, but but maybe one of yeah. the books that I've ever read on economics and markets. Yeah, I've got a few guys that, uh, that they just soak that stuff up. It's, it's an interesting- yeah. 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 All right. Well, that's good. So you mentioned not necessarily from a faith perspective. So did my screen go black for a second? No, you're good. Okay, good. So- Tell me about that. It, you, you're not just a you're not just an M and A guy, right? You're not just a ESOP guy. You have a you have a certain worldview and perspective. Tell me a little bit about your faith and how you have inter- been able to integrate that into the marketplace a little bit. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Grew up in a Southern Baptist church when those existed in California, uh, uh-huh. so accepted Christ at age ten. You know, have always had that faith and and started my own investment banking business in 95. I'm, I'm truncating a, you know, a, a long story, but started in 95, pure M&A advisory. So selling companies, private companies to public companies. But back then, before, you know, back then, there were maybe a dozen private equity groups. People didn't even know what private equity groups were. Ah. So we, would, we, we sold private companies to public companies and then increasingly started selling companies to private equity groups as, as that emerged as, as a large factor in the marketplace. And when Obama became president, sort of, sort of you know, early, early 2000s, we had, we had 08, we had a compression in, in equity values at the same time that taxes were increasing. And so in really high tax states, that got really sideways for people. And and I was thinking, you know, gosh, people need to, how much tax they're going to pay 
baby boomers that have businesses to sell for liquidity and retirement is going to mm -hmm. really, really, really important now. It hadn't been that important before, but now that the valuations are down and taxes are up, it's getting really squeezed for wealth managers like you guys to be able to help clients achieve their, their long-term retirement objectives. Mm. And mm -hmm. so I need to understand this ESOP better. So I did the deep dive on ESOP, read every book in existence, wrote my own book on it, bought into the, the nation's oldest ESOP third-party administration firm to kind of get under the hood, understand the plumbing of about 250 ESOP-owned companies around the country and just became convinced that the ESOP was, was the future. And at the same time, I had the way I described it is I spent the first half of my life, and I'm embarrassed to admit, trying to get God onto my agenda for the business. And he loved me enough to, to turn the spigot off in 08 when I was running my own little shop with you know, a dozen guys and literally just made it really clear that I was supposed to go into ministry for an unknown period of time. And my reaction was, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And he orchestrated the situation where I had to do that. He just shut everything off. And so I got to spend two years inside of an, about a 50 million annual budget Christian evangelical Christian ministry called City Team Ministries. Mm. Domestic and, and international ministry and the way i described that is he god benched me you know benched grounded for repairs benched me from investment banking and got me through that two-year period of time really really clear i was jacked up on on money mm -hmm. going, going into that experience mm -hmm. and god got me through that through that two-year period of time sort of a rotor rooter through my heart i borrowed that mm. from my partner to get really clear mm -hmm. on money, yeah, worship, generosity, the things that you don't hear a lot of from the pulpit. But he benched me, did this, did this real sort of changing of heart. And then I felt released from that back into investment banking with a hundred percent clarity on what God's agenda for, for the world is and what and do my little part that I get to play rather than what I was trying to do. So very, very thankful for that, but total clarity on I'm supposed to spend the second half of my life helping Christian led businesses, business owners in the lower middle market and in the middle market where ministry is happening in the business, you unique kingdom culture businesses and ministries happening outside of the business because of the profitability of the business help them see that there's just a way better answer to selling that business to a private equity, a secular private equity group or a strategic buyer simply for that cash liquidity event and, and seeing the result of all of that kingdom impact dying. And so mm -hmm. set me on this path to, to really educate as many Christian business owners as possible on what this alternative is. Not that it's the end all answer, but most business owners don't understand it at all. Most of their CPUs yep. don't understand it.
at all because they haven't studied it yet. Yeah, just the, the, the objective is how do how can they with that information then pray in a more informed way about what God wants them to do if they really are stewards as as many of them say yeah. they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that term grounded for repairs. Yeah, there's a, there's a half of a book written that one day I'll finish, <laughs> but it, for sure granted granted for repairs. I yeah I, I needed it in retrospect. Yeah, roto rooting your roto rooting my heart. Yeah, yeah, those are two. That's great. Yeah, that might be the title of the podcast: roto rooting <laughs> your heart. Yeah. <laughs> so so you've made that trend. So when did you when did you come out of City Team Ministries, and when did you start putting an emphasis on? I went in, so 08 happened, and lost the biz, lost the business, lost virtually everything in in 08. Okay. Took two years for that to play out, and and then spent from two from 2010 approximately to 2012 at City Team Ministries, and then felt released back into. The investment banking world with with almost exclusive focus on the ESOP. So so today <clears throat> we still do. You know, we'll still if somebody's convinced that the ESOP isn't the right answer for them, and they and they want to sell the business to an outside buyer, we still provide the services. But mm -hmm. passion is helping the the aforementioned type of businesses perpetuate the independence and the kingdom impact of that business that they are stewarding using the ESOP structure, and then uniquely a pocket of capital that can help lubricate, I guess, might, might be an adjective to, to, to describe it, but, but, but historically speaking, you, you, when you sell to the ESOP, you have not been able to get the same amount of liquidity that you would if you were selling to a private equity group, for example. And so my partners and I have formed Perpetuate Capital that, that structures, finances, advises, and closes these, these types of ESOP transactions, but also we'll write it, selectively we'll write a check. So we'll, we'll co-invest, we'll lend the money to the, to, the, to the employee trust below the bank. The objective being that the seller can achieve by virtue of the bank and us up top, the same amount of cash at close that he would receive if he sold to the, the secular private equity group that's bugging him. And so yeah. if, we, if we can, you know, normalize that liquidity slug mm -hmm. and they understand that they get to retain control going forward and maintain the kingdom, kingdom culture and you know, operating decisions going forward, plus, 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 that re that can really, really resonate with a lot of people and leave yeah. significant, yeah. significant legacies through structuring help with you guys. Yeah. And so we, we've come across a number of different ESOP folks, but rarely is there an understanding of how it can continue. And like you said, perpetuate, that's a great word, perpetuate the, the ministry of the organization. A lot of times it's a, it's a trans, like it's just pure transaction analysis, right? If I'm, if I'm doing a waterfall and I'm looking at 
you know, all these different options and my business happens to be eligible for an ESOP. And I'm happy to stick around a little bit longer and provide leadership and transition authority. Then why wouldn't I do that? But the added layer of, is this the ideal scenario for the company to continue on from a ministry perspective and be able to bless as many stakeholders as possible? Is this the ideal scenario? And, and that's really the, the key thing that I've heard out of you, which I really appreciate. So for the audience, people who are thinking about an ESOP, somebody that's saying, hey, you know, I've heard the I've heard that acronym. I'm not entirely sure what it even stands for. You know, how do those how does that even work? Where would I start? Kind of give an initial conversation of why would somebody consider an ESOP and what are the key things that they need to be thinking about as they determine whether a deeper conversation would be helpful. Yeah, so I'll start with a, a very quick flyover on how and why. And, and then I think the, 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 the listener can say, does that fit me or not? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we, most of us all have family trusts and we put our assets in the trust and the kids and the grandkids are beneficiaries of that trust. And, and the, the employee trust, the ESOP, I use the term employee trust, is exactly that. It's, it is at once a retirement plan, qualified retirement plan, but it's a trust. And all of the employees are merely beneficiaries of the dollar value of the stock and the assets that are, that are in that trust. So they never become actual owners of the stockholders. They have no rights. It's, a lot of business owners think that that the why would I do an ESOP? My a my employees don't have any money, and I don't, I'm not going to give them control over the business. And those are the biggest misconceptions that that exist. Yeah, they're just beneficiaries of the dollar value of the stock that you sold to the trust, and at no cost to them or or anybody other than the government through tax shields, mm-hmm. they're being blessed, literally given significant wealth, life-changing wealth, if they continue to work for the business for the next 10, 20 years. And so you sell your, the business owner sells stock to the trust at fair market value, no no concession on value, same value that you would get if you sold to, to somebody else. They can decide whether they're going to pay capital gains tax or they're not going to pay capital gains tax legally by working with you guys on Section 1042 treatment. Uh, And so economic parity and liquidity for, for the sellers, while at the same time being able to, up top, retain control of the board of directors of the corporation therefore all hiring and firing decisions. So you're getting that that same liquidity that you'd get in a change of control transaction by giving up control to somebody else with different agendas. Here you're keeping it, thus perpetuating the independence and the kingdom impact and the culture of the, of the business, which can be very attractive. And you very uniquely, when you do this transaction and you sell 100% of your stock to the trust and, and you get a certain amount of cash at close and you receive cash flows, note payments out over time, the te- there's a tax shield 
that the government allows in this tax in this corporate structure where taxation on the earnings of the corporation stops it stops entirely and it stops permanently so literally every dollar of profit that's generated in the in that enterprise going forward stays in that enterprise so you run the business the same way that you that you normally would it's just that those profits excess profits flow into the trust and in the early years come right back out to you the seller in the form of payments mm -hmm. those can be tax free if they work with you guys on on 1042 mm -hmm. or they can be taxable it totally depends but now you have this business this this earnings engine that you are the steward of that the government no longer is getting 30 to 50% of the profits anymore legally. And so all of the cash flow that is generated stays in the enterprise and the board, which you, which they control decides where that goes, run the business, pay back the capital that financed the transaction, build up a bunch of, of cash. And you, you can't, we structure these transactions where, where, money out of cash flow forever pipes into donor advised donor advised funds or or other charitable entities that that you can help help clients set up where you can basically pipe cash flow as a as a legacy tithe if you will out of that earnings engine into the kingdom and leave that leave that asset that you've been the steward of flourishing into the future both from a cultural perspective kingdom cultural perspective and a conduit out of out of yeah. cash flow that would have been flushed down the toilets of the government if you, had you not do this in into the kingdom as a legacy that you leave forever and that resonates a lot with people certain people it, certain people now you would think that it would resonate with everybody to keep some cash out of the government's hands just to, just in in general and and, and that you know you got to pay taxes to run right you got to uh, there's bills to running a municipality running a state running a government right there's bills right you got to pay those bills and that's not you know that that's part of uh, what Jesus said pay to caesar what is caesar's so i think the you know one of the you handled a lot of misconceptions you handled a lot of misconceptions what are some of the kind of the litmus test of weeding out the folks who they want this because they think they're going to get a better deal than going to the market and going to the market is just going to take too long, right? It, it's just, or it's not going to provide them as much. So, so what are some of the litmus test things where you say, all right, prospect A, here's what I want to know. And if I if I hear certain things, that's a red flag to be able to say either that person's heart's not in the right spot, or that company should not be turned into an ESOP. Yeah, I I think what I see most is business owners that have waited too long. They're burned out. You know, mm -hmm. they they've held on too long. They're at the point where they are just so fed up with the business that and they're burned out and they didn't do the work that they should have done for the year or two or three preceding that point in time 
which which I'm glad that that firms like yours exist to help help them solve. There's very few wealth managers that that I see in the market that take such, such a holistic and comprehensive approach that you guys do. So I, I commend you for that. Thank you. They they like the idea of being able to maximize the value of selling the business, which you can do in the ESOP. And you can do it on your own pace and your own control, which which is we're all control freaks, business owners. So you know that that resonates. But they they're there and they're they're like, you know, everything sounds great, but I'm done. You know, I don't want to have to stay with this thing for another three years during the transition. So that is a major red flag. You have to plan accordingly. And what we have found ourselves doing at Perpetuate is in response to this, taking a more active role in helping to find outside of the business successor CEO, successor senior management to sort of solve for that variable, just like private equity groups do, you know, they have, they don't expect the guy to run, to run the business forever. They, they for, for a transition period. Yeah. But they've got a bench of talent that they're going to drop into the business for operational reasons where we increasingly find ourselves doing that and helping to solve for that so that you can serve the guy who's burned himself out because there's a lot of really, really good people that have done that with, with their, with the right heart and have created wonderful kingdom businesses and we just have to have to have to solve if if if, if they don't get to you in time for you guys to solve that in, in the best way in my opinion then we're finding ourselves having to solve for that on, on the back end yeah part of that is that key leader win right Yes. Having a team that can carry forward, you've yeah. delegated, you're out of the middle of the circle. A lot of those steps can be taken care of. And I've got, I've got three or four examples in my mind right now. You know, the, 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 the profile of the person is I'm the most important person in my company. I'm the one that started it. Nobody knows it better than me. And if I start to delegate those things, they won't be done as well. And the company will suffer. And in the early years, yeah, probably. Right, you're the you're you're the wizard. You're wearing every single hat. But if your company is established and you still see yourself that way, it's only decreasing the value of your company. It's only keeping the opportunity for it to flourish beyond you. It, it's keeping it that hindered, and really keeping it in a box. Yeah. And so, but that that's an interesting perspective. You know, we look at those successor CEOs. Some of those that personality, they want to be plugged in for a couple of years. They want to they want to give it that bridge opportunity. And they're looking for something else to do anyway. And God's designed CEOs to specifically fit that bill. To lead it, it, they're almost like relief pitchers, right? Yeah. You, you've you've done all the hard work. I'm gonna come in for an in, inning or two and we're gonna close this thing out, right? But maybe like a you know, a two to five year gig mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where where they are they're receiving the succession from the seller, handling it correctly, and then as part of part of their role and their gig is to find somebody younger, yeah, that they can bring in, mentor, exit themselves, and allow allow the next generation to to sort of continue continue that. 
Yeah, we, we, so we, we've told you about the grade eight, the, the virtues and the vices. We talked about three wins at the beginning of the podcast. So the grade eight is, is the virtues based on Matthew chapter five, Beatitudes. And so the, the virtues in an organization, right? And these are not the silver bullet terms, but, but the, the purpose was to say, here are some virtues that if a company is leading both at, at the, the macro level and the micro level based on these virtues, and guarding against the vices, right? Because if you're not proactive with the virtues, the vices are going to creep in. So if you're guarding against the vices, then you have a chance at excellent, abnormal, above and beyond collaboration. If you have the three wins all mapped out, then you have a, the, the collaboration combined with that the courage of the three wins, right? Because it's not easy work putting those three wins together. It takes a lot of Right. Thinking and planning and intentionality, we call that the collaboration effect on profit. And so we're writing a book with that title due out in a couple of months. And the subtitle of it is Overcoming the Founder's Syndrome. And that's really part where that hits in. One of those examples of I can't see myself not running and owning this company. And that is a detriment to them. It's, it's a detriment to their family. And it's a detriment to all of the stakeholders that are helping that founder and owner tell that story. And this, that, that's really that piece of if we can help unlock that and get them over that hump and solve, begin to solve for that fear. Oh, it's huge. Uh, you know, if it's an ego thing versus fear. Identity. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is who I am, but that's not, right? Our identity is in Christ, not a business that he's given us to run. Right. And that's that faith piece. It's, it's hard to see sometimes without that faith piece, but I, that resonates That resonates there as far as those additional CEOs coming in. So you have a burned out person. That's a red flag. Waited too long. Emergency exit. Just looking for a cash windfall, right, to get out of the business. They don't have any interest in, in staying on. Well, that, that particular point is sometimes a, a, a game changer if you're looking private equity too, right? They want somebody that's going to help bridge the leadership in, in, in transition gap as well. What are some other red flags that you see as far as people who think ESOP, but you know for sure it's not a good deal? Yeah, you have to have, I would say, at least a couple million of EBITDA and maybe 30 employees kind of on the, that's the edge of the strike zone. And then everything inside that strike zone is bigger than that. And so you kind of have to, you have to, for it to make sense financially, I think you kind of have to be at the edge of that strike zone or or in in it much bigger. Yeah. It, then it becomes motives. Like like if you if you are are completely sold on the fact that you want to perpetuate the independence of that business and you're willing to take as long as necessary to get to get liquidity for yourself then the ESOP's going to work for you. Even if you're in a, in a highly cyclical, crazy business where you have unpredictable cash flows that maybe mm -hmm. be a great candidate for institutional debt that's being, that's being provided for the liquidity. If you, if, if you choose to, you can, you can still have that ESOP be your answer if it's important enough to you. Because you just forbear, you wait to get paid 
if you get into a year or two of deep yogurt in in but so that's a, one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum is is if if you really are in in need of a certain amount of cash at close within a you know a year or two period of time from close and a lot of people are and that's not necessarily wrong i had we 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 had a a retreat with c12 chairs last month mm -hmm. around the dinner table talking about this and, and you know motivations of sellers needing needing sort of the tension between perpetuating as a steward what god's given you and being willing to make sacrifices that for that on one end and on the other end having a certain amount of cash at close for liquidity and diversification and you know sort of all those reasons and, and, and a guy made this comment that and i hadn't really heard it before and it made a lot of sense is you know put yourself in the shoes of that guy he can have the best heart of any man you've ever met and wants to do the right thing but he doesn't know if he's going to live for the next five five years or seven years maybe he's not healthy maybe you know it it's the most responsible thing for him and his family to indeed get a, get enough cash at close so that he's taking care of his family because he doesn't know whether he's going to none of us know our days right and, no. so, and so that's that can become an important aspect of solving these these problems which is which is why the this structured equity asset class this this in this type of investment is so important to be focused in these ESOP transactions so that you can solve more of those more of those problems and more kingdom companies can be perpetuated yeah well and it goes back to why not start early in the delegation process getting yourself out of the center of the wheel yeah, I just was going to to your, to your earlier, earlier point. I was going to say what I've observed is that when, when you're when the, when the guy's at the point working with you and he's wrestling through the, these identity issues, these issues of how do I extract myself from the bit, not just my capital, but how do I extract myself from this business, <clears throat> you know, in in the most appropriate way. There's there's when you do that. When when you have a when you call everybody together in a say a two day strategic planning process to get everybody speaking into and focused on a twenty four month goal, where everybody sort of buys into where the business is going, that's that's healthy. That's a good thing to do. But when you do that, and you're also at the same time layering in employee ownership, you know, beneficial ownership vis a vis the ESOP, and now everybody is integral in developing strategic objectives and quarterly goals towards a 24-month endpoint, at the same time that they're understanding that, that, that their financial motivations and incentives are turbocharged by virtue of this ESOP that comes into place, that if they can achieve these goals and they can continue to to watch costs in the business like a business owner would rather than an employee because it puts serious money in their pocket at retirement that's when you see turbocharged success and performance in, in a business 
And that can get really, that's the right way to do it. That's the right thing to bolt onto all of the work that I'm, that, that you guys are doing holistically and in that, that strategic planning work. It's, you, you're just, you're putting gas on the fire in a positive that's, way. And, and that's that CEOP, the collaboration effect on profit. Yeah. That, 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 that effect is, and, and, you know, it's not a magic, it's not a magic or silver bullet or, or you know, magic pill. You have to still do the hard work, right? You have to guard against the vices, egotism, territorialism, fear, greed, anger. You have to, dishonesty, right? Distract. You got to guard against those things because that's the formula for doing doing what you need to be doing to, to, to achieve the benchmarks. But when you get those things humming, right, you're spinning that flywheel. Collins talks about the flywheels. You get that flywheel moving, then it's easier to keep that going, right? And you have to continue to check each other. You have to continue to, to, to collaborate well. But profit is not just dollars in that statement, collaboration effect on profit. We talk about Mark 836. What is it? Profit a man to gain the whole world, but forfeit his soul. And so you look at this and say, you know, I, and this is one of the litmus tests we have. We say, hey, you know, what's most important? Getting what you think you're owed for the blood, sweat, and tears that you've poured into this business. Is that where your heart is? Is that your motivation? Is that what you're trying to do? Or, you know, just because you didn't plan well, just because you took the short road for many years, you're letting go of what could be a blessing, a perpetual blessing, like you're saying, to the rest of these groups. And that's a little bit of, that's just a, bit, a little bit of hard love with some of these business owners who, you know, they're saying, you know, me and mine, that's the number one priority. And again, it is, hey, you have, you have to take care of your family. You call to your family first. You have to take care of your family. But it is a little bit of a hard conversation to say, I'm looking at the way you've lived and planned. You've used this company as a ATM. And now all of a sudden you need a cash, uh, a, a, a big cash flow moment, windfall to be able to then set your, your, your family up in the legacy that you prefer. And it's going to be at an expense. There's always an opportunity cost of going in one direction or another. The health question, it, it, you can't argue with that, right? But that's going through the proper check. And this profit idea is emotional, physical, spiritual, wisdom, family, and financial. Yeah. If you only focus on the financial transaction right even with the tax implications what does this mean so going through that idea gain the whole world but forfeit a soul that's what profit is it's just an advantage you've get you've been given resources you've created an advantage of them but what you got out of that did you have to forfeit your soul and if you did hey that, that ain't that that's going to be a hard conversation one day uh, in that person's future how it ain't you, gonna be with you or me, it's gonna be with, with the Lord. At the Bema seat, that's right. That's how, right. How you define success is everything. And so your your approach to helping them get clarity, how indeed they do define success is is a game mm -hmm. changer. Game changer, and it's exactly the help that they need. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the things that I like about this ESOP question and exercise is 
it helps you orient, right? You're, you're taking what I believe is, is one of the most noble transaction opportunities. It, it depends, right? You may have spun off a company and you're just, you're just growing it. It doesn't take a lot of manpower. You're growing it and you're going to sell it to private equity one day because they want to roll it up into some turnkey thing or whatever the motivation is, right? That's a little bit different. That's an asset that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily impact a lot of stakeholders. You can kind of kind of talk through the different assets and what they mean. Um, but like you're saying, 30 plus with a couple of mil million of EBITDA, there's dependency on that. There's purpose in that. It takes a lot of people thinking and working and exercising and coming in and saying, I'm a part of this story and I'm going to help build it. So there's a, it's a very noble approach to consider the ESOP. And when you do, you're able to look at it and say, if this is not it, I've at least paid attention to it. And one of the other misconceptions that, you know, I look at and, and hear a lot of the time, is, uh, it's just too expensive. It's just, it, it's just too expensive. It costs a lot of money to do that. It's just too expensive. Now, it is if you don't meet right that threshold, right? Because then, yeah, it is too expensive. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's going to cost you a lot of money to put it in place, and you may not get that amount of benefit out of it. I always but if that's, the, if that's the only reason you're saying it's just too expensive and too complicated and too many attorneys involved and too many of this and everything else, that's not okay. How do you address that objection? That's so lame. I, I hear that so, so often. And whenever I hear that question or whenever I get the comment, it's too expensive, my answer is always compared to what? And I've yet in 30 years to hear a good answer to, to that question. Too expensive compared to what? Too expensive compared to continuing to give the government 30 to 50% of the, of the, of the profits every year? I mean, the cost of doing this transaction is a sliver fraction of one year of tax bill that, that, that you're writing checks for. Moreover, if you're going to hire an investment banking firm to take you to the market and get multiple bids from private equity groups and strategic buyers, the cost of doing that transaction is double what it would be all in, double what the cost of the ESOP. The ESOP transaction is about half of, it feels like it's more because you're writing checks to more people. And there's a lot of people involved, but total dollars out, it's half the cost. And so it just, there's just so many misconceptions. And, and when, you, when you understand the cost relative to what your alternative decision is of running a sale process, it's for sure less. When you contextualize the cost of the transaction compared to stopping taxes forever against your earnings engine, it's nominal, right? So it's, it's just, it's having the right context. Yeah. And most people, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Most business owners turn to their CPAs. You know, they hear all the great things about the ESOP. Hopefully they also hear what the disadvantages are because there, there are a couple of disadvantages to talk about. But, Let's go over those next. Yeah. But on the whole, the advantages always, always outweigh the, the disadvantages. And it sounds too good to be true. They, they talk to their CPA and, you know, that's the trusted advisor typically with respect to the business. And then the CPA 
eight times out of 10 does what I did when I was younger in my career and I didn't understand the ESOP, you poo-poo it. You're exp when you get put in a situation where as a professional, you're supposed to have the, you know, you're supposed to have the answers and you don't, and the client asks you about it, you, you know, you, you muddy the waters, you obfuscate, you say it's too expensive, it's too complicated. You say those things to get to move them away and over to the more traditional transaction form, which everybody understands. And, and it's just an easier, it's an easier way to, to, to get it done. And so I get that because I, I did that. But, but the older CPAs in the country that were practicing when these laws came out in the late 70s understand it. And the two out of the 10 CPAs in, in, in the United States that understand it are big proponents of it. And that, which is why I wrote the book, so that, so that younger generation CPAs can can read that book in a weekend, understand it, and and be be in a position to advise clients in a more informed way. What's really interesting, last thing I'll say here, yesterday, a press release hit the wire where BDO, the, the sixth largest CPA firm in the world, just announced an ESOP for their 10,000 US employees. So it's the first time that a, there's been a, a handful of regional CPA firms that have, that have done this, but it's the first time that a, a very, very large accounting firm, really smart guys adopted an ESOP transaction. So we're starting to see, and, and, and this will be, a, you know, a, a moment in time that will, that I think will change the, pers the perspective of ESOPs within the, the the CPA community for sure. How about that? Yeah, you would think that CPAs like to save would, on taxes. Well, not only that, but but CPAs are losing their clients when private equity right. buy them, right? So it's in their own interest. Yeah. Understand how that business can be perpet the independence can be perpetuated so that they can keep them as a client. And once you understand it, that it's better for the client. They're going to get just as much money, if not more. Mm -hmm. and everybody, everybody wins. But so, so it's just a matter of of education mm -hmm. in a con in contextualizing the that ESOP path chunk of education compared to private equity strategic, and so they can again how you define success is everything. Success here is they understand it because they didn't understand it before. Now they understand it and they can pray in a more informed way. And then the gut, there, there are guys where, where they hear from hear a word from the Lord that they're supposed to sell that business to a strategic buyer and shift all that risk to somebody else. And who am I or anybody to, to say that that's, that's not what you should do. If you hear from the Lord that you're supposed to do that, then that's what you're supposed to do. But too many people don't understand or get talked out of through misconceptions or bias yeah. th that they shouldn't look at this compared. Any company that a private equity group is interested in buying and expressing interest in is a candidate for the ESOP transaction. Yeah, the Lord likes context. 
and he wants he he likes us to trust him, but also to use in information and and other trusted people that he's working through, especially on a big decision like that. He doesn't just it's not just a, a poof at hey, you need to go do this and you know, all the people who you trust and are are, you know, in the saddle with you, they're like, where did that come from? Right. It, it's still a it, you may lead in that direction and it may become more clear, but it's not just a magical, hey this is what I heard. So this is what we're going to go do. And no, it doesn't make sense to anyone. And it really is the dumbest decision ever, but I still think it's what we need to do. That's a hard sell, right? That's a, that's a hard thing to up and, and decide to do. One example of that is, is, and I know some people have put their entire company in a, or, or the majority of it into a donor advice fund. Yeah. Right. Or they put it in a trust yeah. and I'm, you know, I'm selling my business to the Lord. Well, no, you're putting it in a trust and there's a trustee, right? It, it, the formula has not evaporated. God cannot be listed as a trustee on your, right? And then the beneficiary that is still a group of people running a 501c3, there, there's still, it's yeah. always men involved. So you don't actually sell your business to God, right? You can give it all away to the, to the purposes and in, in, in the, the specific groups that you want to. But at least as far as I've seen, there's no way to put God as a trustee. I, yeah, I, I, if, if you are a steward, if you're listening to this and you really know that you're a steward or you think you're trying to figure out what does that mean? I, you know, I, I'm, I know I'm supposed to be a steward, but what does that mean? If you're a steward, I would, I would say that you, it is your responsibility to understand this alternative it's not your responsibility mm -hmm. to execute on it that's between you and the lord but it's certainly your responsibility to understand it so that you can pray about it and then be led with what you should do and have peace about whatever whatever path you're going to walk down so you do a feasibility study right we've talked about that in the past and and you, you do those a good bit it, it, the feasibility study is simply that you're checking to see Right, you're going through and checking the boxes and saying, "It's looking is at this. The is this a legitimate opportunity and, and path forward or not? If it's not, you crossed it off the list." Right, right. It's just that due diligence and feasibility. So, how does that process work? Yeah, so it's the net on it is we look at the last ten years of history of the business, we look at the present condition of the business, and we look at the at the projected ten years of the business revenue in in EBITDA and value the business within five percent within a five percent range of where that where that business will ultimately sell to the to the employee trust so here's here's what businesses is worth for purposes of transacting and oftentimes you're saying you know here's what you could get from a private equity group and, and, and those numbers are are almost always exactly the same and here's what you might get for the business if you sold to a strategic buyer. And sometimes those numbers can, can be higher, it just depends. And so here's what the business is worth, down all three of those paths, and now you take that valuation range and you layer it on a, one or two ESOP scenarios. So one scenario mm -hmm. could be selling 49% now and, and maybe selling the rest seven years later and sort of test driving, test driving it. The other scenario is selling 100% 
to the ESOP now? And, and, so, and so what what does that look like? What kind of what kind of liquidity happens at, at, at close? What do payments look like? What do what do tax shields look like? How do employees benefit from that? So it's you know it's sort of getting under the hood and then really unpacking it. So instead of theoretical, it's okay. Now I'm taking the, those theoretical concepts and applying them to a very specific company fact pattern, and it's the blueprint for the build. So you so so here, this is exactly what you could go do within five percent variance. And mm -hmm. now you know what it's worth, what what you could go accomplish with it, and you and you know that in context of what else you could go do, mm -hmm. and and then you 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 pray about it and decide that you don't want to do it or you do want to do it, and if you do, then that that's a separate. So that first phase is like a 30, 30 day, you know, pretty nominal, ten mm -hmm. ten fifteen thousand dollars depending on complexity, and. Sure. Or five hour, you know, session that punctuate learning session that punctuates that, and then then you're in a position, I think, to to decide whether you want to go do it, and then that becomes a separate separate conversation. But you you asked about disadvantages, and I want to come back and hit those really really quick before we before we move on. Yeah, uh, the 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 employee trust structure is an amplifier. It, it is not a prophylactic around the business that that protects it from dumb decisions or bad markets right i mean those those realities can exist whether or not the, the corporate structure is has an employee trust or not so it's not perfect it's not doesn't you know it's not it doesn't make all problems go potential problems extraneous problems go away <clears throat> but <clears throat> excuse me but you're able to to look at it understand it in in the context and be able to decide whether whether it's it's the right thing or not to do so if you put the if you put the company into a trust then you can still make a dumb decision and it negatively impact the success of the company yeah it it can so it's it, it, it's not it, it's not a prophylactic for that what it, what nobody you can't ever if a, if a man if a if a person a team that's that goes back to you got to pay attention you got to work hard you got to collaborate at a high level you got to pursue strategic best practices and well, go got you still got to it, it doesn't put it on autopilot yeah so it's an amplifier so so yeah. if if the company stumbles either either for management's fault or no fault at all it amplifies that that stumble because conversely yes. when the when the company succeeds quite well like we talked about before it amplifies that success when when employees know that there's direct linkage between the financial incentives personal financial incentives and in and, and the stock price of the business the the profitability of the business that amplifies success it works both ways so and so so that amplifier can can be not always but can be a, a disadvantage and then the other thing i would say is that is that you've you've got in the average 
ESOP transaction is going to cost $50,000 a year in additional compliance work, which is not a big number. It's certainly not a big number compared to the, the magnitude of taxes that are stopping as, as a result. But you, but you have, so I wouldn't say that the cost is, is a disadvantage really at all, but you have another layer of compliance, right? So most, most businesses have 401k plans. And, and they have a third-party administration firm that they pay to keep that plan in compliance. You have one more plan to keep in compliance, and it's, and it's a little bit more, you know, compliance work, basically, for, for the business. Yeah. The, the two disadvantages, I would say. Yeah, and, and, you know, not to spin the disadvantages, but, you know, we, we talk about transparency, right? If you, and, and when we're putting together the key leader win, we let the owners know, hey, we're seeing everything, right? We see we see the financials top to bottom. We look at the history. We kind of talk through some of those things. And you can see in the financials where some normalizing needs to occur. And the owners say, hey, I want these folks to know about that. Now, it's within, it's within the legal parameters, right? Some certain things that need to be normalized. But if you took it to the market, everybody's going to look, right? In your, in your underwear drawer, they're going to look, right? They've got to. You can't do it. On, it. There's no good deal where it doesn't happen, that transparency. Right. And so if you're asking these folks to step in that direction, now you're not going to, you're not going to manufacture. You're not going to say somebody on the line gets to see, you know, all of the financials top to bottom, all of the ins and outs, right? There's still layers of transparency that exist, but the idea is, yeah, if you don't make a good decision, right, then people are going to know about it. That's the same thing as a publicly traded company, right? Right. Yeah. There, there's transparency and in, in it, it may not be the same level of, well, this is my sandbox to come and play in and just have, I mean, you still have to, if you're committed to being a great leader and a great owner and overcoming the vices and promoting the virtues in yourself and all the other people who are integral to the success and leadership of the company, then it may seem like a disadvantage, but I disagree. I don't know if it's a disadvantage. The compliance thing, I don't think it's a disadvantage either. It's just, it's just extra work, right? Yeah. It's a cost of that. And, and it still may be an overhead cost to go through that whole compliance thing, right? And, and the people and the training and getting everybody up to speed. And that's why there's ESOP associations, yeah. right? They do all of that training and get you caught up to speed and you know, help people who are in finance and HR, you know, they get together and train each other and, and, and you know, kind of help them out, understanding what their new role is in an ESOP company. But it's, um, really, it's not daunting. It's like anything else. Yeah. You're, people are, we're, we're all of us as human beings are afraid of what we don't know. And so once you understand it, you know, you, you devote 40 hours to understanding it, then it's, it's really not that big of a deal. But it is, it's transparency. The employees only see... They don't see financials. They don't have any any additional rights or preferences or anything like that. But they do see a, a statement with how much how much stock they vested into and the stock price every year. So they yeah. get in the direction of the company. One of our clients told us just talking about their story. They've been in ESOP for gosh years, years and years, and the original owners are out of the situation. Right? It has succeeded to the next generation. And they talked about one of their meetings. I don't think it was a receptionist, but close to 
that level employee, right? We're not talking about a highly paid individual. They got their statement. This lady got her statement at a big company meeting, right? But they talked about, here's the increase in the value. And her statement said that she was a millionaire. And she ran forward with it and, and was announcing her resignation. She said, I'm out, right? I've hit it. I'm out. Her husband was chasing her saying, no, wait a little longer. <laughs> Because it's only it's it's not only going to go up, but it's going to go up, right? Things are going to they have the chance to continue to improve. Why not be a little bit more of a millionaire if you wait a couple more years? But she said, "No, I'm out. I'm done. Grandkids and hobbies and whatever else she wanted to do." But that's an example of a great story that could be told. Yeah, by the for way, so many people involved. Yeah, that's that's a great story. It, it it's worth mentioning that structurally, when you structure these desktop transactions. You owe the way we do it is you always have a five-year lag period between when the when the employee leaves the business, you know, they so they look at their statement and they and they've got a million dollars or whatever it is. They have to wait five years, the way we structure these transactions, in order to get that five that that million dollars. So what you don't want to do is create the whole premise behind. East employee trust is incentives work, right? When you send mm -hmm. yes. they behave. And so what you don't want to do on the flip side of that is you don't want to create an incentive for people to bail and immediately get paid to bail, right? So yeah. you can five year lag period. So yeah, you can make that decision to bail, but you're not going to get that money for, for five years. So now they can they can immediately begin to draw on their 401k side of the account, right? Assuming they're, assuming they're, you know, 59 and a half and they've done all the, all the, met all the other parameters. Yeah. But that specific piece, which is separate from a 401k, sometimes, you know, there, there's some, there's some nuances that you got to get into that we don't have time for today. But uh, it, those are the things that I, I think are, are, you can customize the plan right. to meet your needs. It's not an out of the box. There are features of it that you can customize. And that's when we tackle the key leader win question, right? And, and, and typically it's deferred compensation. It's it's a couple of different things, stock, different things like that, especially if they're not going in this, this direction. You can still do some of those things, but this is a ESOP is a little bit of a different direction. But it's not a it's not a one size fits all. You customize it because no two companies are the same, no two two groups of key leaders are the same, no two owners are the same. No two time periods are the same. So you have to be able to customize it. And that's what you're saying. People can get, once they get a handle of how it works structurally, then they learn those levers they can pull to make it their plan. Yeah, it's highly customizable. Yeah, yeah. All right. I, I think I, I learn something new every time we talk. And I know that the audience has a, a great foundation to go with. So if they need to get in touch with you, we'll put your name of the company in there. And then anybody that's listening, if you want to reach out directly to Brant, holler at me at Legacy and I'll connect you with Brant. But uh, thank you, Brant, not only for the, the technical expertise, but also the passion and the heart and the conviction around this. And uh, it just took a couple of years of roto-rooting to get you in a position where you could, could walk in this path that the Lord had for you the whole time. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Hopefully there was a, a, a little bit of value. Indeed it was. Thank you very much.